Of Almighty God be in your heart and on your lips, you might worthily proclaim the gospel, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, King of endless glory. So 
this way, they were greater sinners than all other Galileans? By no means. But I tell you, if you do not repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those eighteen people who were killed when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than everyone else who lived in Jerusalem? By no means. But I tell you, if you do not repent, you will all perish as they did. And he told them this parable. There once was a person who had a fig tree planted in his orchard. And when he came and searched a fruit on it, but found none, he said to the gardener, For three years now I have come in search of fruit on this fig tree, but have found none. So cut it down. Why should it exhaust the soil? He said to him in reply, Sir, leave it for this year also, and I shall cultivate the ground around it and fertilize it. It may bear fruit in the future. <coughs> if not, you can cut it down. The gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the annals of underachievers who later go on to become world figures, there is probably none so great as that of Moses. We find Moses uh, this morning in this morning's reading from the book of Exodus as a young guy who is, in a sense, sort of the billboard for underachievers. He is um, young and he's not done well at college and he doesn't know what he wants to do with his life and community college doesn't work for him. And so where do we find him? We find him out in the desert by himself tending a bunch of sheep. It's, it's a pretty underachieving experience for him, an underachieving sort of life choice for him. There's nothing else to do, so I'll just take care of sheep in the desert. And that life out there must have been rather unstimulating because he's in a desert for heaven's sakes. And all he's got to do all day, there's only one thing he has to do, and that is sort of follow his sheep and make sure nobody fall, none of them fall into a ravine or get eaten by a wolf. And that's not that hard uh, to do. So he just sort of follows along. They lead the way, sniffing out a blade of grass here or a blade of grass there. And that's, that's his life. And he's out there and he has absolutely nothing to do. There's not even a cloud in the sky that he can imagine looks like an ice cream cone or an angel flying by. And he has no cell phone, so he can't play Candy Crush all day long. <laughs> So, you know, it's a pretty awful life, really. There's not much going on in young Moses' uh, activity and his, uh, his plan for life or even out there. So we can kind of imagine his surprise, to say the least, when as he's following along his sheep and they're kind of leading him around the base of Mount Horeb, 
that out there in that desert of Midian, he sees a bush that's on fire. Well, that's interesting in the middle of the day. You know, there's a certain kind of bush out there in that desert that has a lot of, I don't know, sort of kerosene-like stuff inside of it. And they're known when it gets really hot to kind of spontaneously combust. So he probably had heard of that phenomenon. He wants to go see, like any kid. You know, you want to go see what's going on. So he wanders over to the burning bush to see what's going on. And surprise number one is, of course, that it's burning. But surprise number two, the one that's really, really sort of takes him back, is the fact that though this bush is burning, is on fire, you know, it's not burning. There's no ash. There's no bits and pieces falling off to the ground. It's staying intact, even though it's on fire. And if you think that surprise was a big surprise, making him scratch his head and think back to his long-forgotten lessons in chemistry from grade school, you know, what's going on here? How does this fit into nature and the world? Um, Then all of a sudden, he's standing there being kind of wondrous before this burning bush that's not being burned, and a voice comes out of it. And now this is really something. He hears his name called from within the burning bush. And now you can say to use the, the kind of expression that the British and the Irish and the Australians use, you know, he must have really at that point been gobsmacked. You know, here he is, all of a sudden, there's a voice coming out of the bush, and it's calling his name. And then, if that's not enough, the voice says to him, Did nobody teach you any manners, Moses? For God's sake, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. This is God talking here. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And and that's when, of course, everything begins for the young slacker, Moses. And he goes on to become the great Moses we know from the rest of the story. Now this story of the encounter between Moses and God in the burning bush is a really important one. In fact, you might also might even say it's a foundational one for all of the Jewish faith for the millennia to come, and, and by extension then also for Christianity and Islam. Because it's teaching several fundamental things about who God actually is. Now, in in Moses' time, there were lots and lots of beliefs about God. And, you know, there were gods for this and gods for that. There were fertility gods and gods of the sun and gods of the trees and gods of this. And all of their neighbors had little little uh, idols that they would have in their houses and, and that they would kind of worship and pray. And they didn't know anything about it. But, of course, they were all dumb and stupid and dead. But all of a sudden here you have one God... One God who is the father of his ancestors, the God that they've always known, who makes himself clear just who he is. And the first thing, the first thing that he's got to teach Moses about himself is that he's not way, 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 way up there. He's not a God who is distant and stuck up on a throne in the clouds. He's a God who's down here and he can make himself present and speak to us whenever he wants. (coughs) And if he can make himself present and make this dusty, dirty, rocky land of the Midian Desert 
turn into a holy ground, then he can do that whenever God wants. And that's really important. God makes his presence known here to us, eye to eye, face to face, voice to voice, burning bush to burning cheeks. That's the first great mystery of God and wherever God is found, here, down below, that is holy ground. And, and from that time forward, the, the people of the one God have always had a deep sense that this ground under our feet is holy ground. It's not just the heavens above that are holy. But wherever we find God down below, wherever He reveals Himself to us, you got holy ground under your feet and you better take off your shoes. <laughs> and we experience that in our own lives. This is not just, not just sort of a story being told without any point. From that point on till this present moment, we know that we can find holy ground under our feet, the presence of God, anywhere and everywhere. You know, you're in the kitchen and you're cutting up some, some vegetables for dinner and you suddenly stop and have one of those just quiet moments. You close your eyes and say, but you put your knife down, by the way. <laughs> oh, isn't life grace? That's holy ground moment. The kitchen can be holy ground. The bedroom can be holy ground. The smile of a newborn child can be holy ground. The last breath of someone who's dying can be holy ground. A mountaintop can be holy ground. A highway can be holy ground. Wherever God is, that's holy ground. And God, this story tells us, is here. Second thing that happens in this story is really important too and goes even further. God says to Moses, okay, Moses, now that you know uh, who I am, that I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Moses, uh, Moses, not Moses, Isaac and Jacob, this is what I want to tell you about me. I hear, I have ears. I hear the cry of the poor. I feel for this little lost race of people that's been enslaved in Egypt. Their hurt and their agony and their suffering and their oppression and the injustice that is pounding them down into the dirt makes me feel everything. I hear the cry of the poor. I weep with the tears of the poor. I know what it feels like to be oppressed with the poor. And therefore I will act. I am not an impotent God. I am a God with feelings. I am a God who weeps. I am a God who cries. And I am a God who acts. And I will free those poor crying people from their slavery and lead them in my own good time to a land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses, I want you to be part of my plan, by the way. Well, what this reveals about God is certainly that God is filled with compassion. 
but even more, that God is compassion with us, here and now, especially in our tears and our cries and our prayers. And God acts in his own good time, in his own preferred way. So that's really important. And then there's another moment. So all of that gets spoken. Moses hesitates, and he's not so sure about this. After all, he is an underachiever, a little bit of a slacker. And he sort of debates with the voice of God and says, I don't know. And he says, no one's going to believe me. He sets up some excuses for not, for not doing what God wants them to do. No one will believe me. You know, they'll just make fun of me. And they'll say, oh, you're having deliriums and dreams. And maybe, you know, who else what's, what happens out there in the desert? And he says, so I need to bring them something. I need to bring them your name. I need to tell them who has sent me. And this must make God pause. Because in, in, the, in the Jewish mentality, in the Jewish uh, culture, a name of a person is not just something that is kind of put on their forehead as a label. It's not just something that's filled in on a birth certificate or social security documents. A name is so much more than that. It's your, it's your identity. It's your being. It's your, 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 your interior. It's your... Your very heart and soul, it's everything who you are. And and you do not give your name lightly to someone else unless you're sure that they can care for it, that they will respect it, that they will cherish it. And, And so this is a big ask that Moses makes of God. Who should I say is sending me? What's your name? And in God's response, he does something extraordinary. He makes himself completely vulnerable and exposes himself to Moses, to us. He pulls back his clothes. He pulls back whatever might be hiding him. And he shows to Moses his very soul, his very heart, indeed his his entire being. I am, he says. That's my name. I am. No adjectives necessary. No descriptive need to be added. Simply, I am. I am. I am. I am what is below, I am what is above, I am what is inside, I am what is within. I am. That's my name. Tell them I am sent you. And in this most vulnerable, exposing, intimate moment, God in a sense becomes naked before humanity. By giving us his precious name and allowing us the privilege of cherishing it and of knowing who God is. It's a spectacular moment, the book of Exodus. And all of these moments 
set the foundation for everything else that's going to happen in the Hebrew scriptures and in the Christian scriptures and our stories that go on and on and on to the present day. And in particular, they set up for us our way to understand who Jesus is. So, in a very real way, we move from a burning bush to human flesh. From God speaking out of a burning bush with a sort of uh, unattached voice to God speaking to us out of a body, a living body with a real voice and real ears and real hands and real fingertips. And we hear his actual voice say to us, you know, blessed are the poor. Your sins are forgiven. Rise, Lazarus, rise. And this is the enfleshment of the voice of God, the presence of God. And wherever Jesus walks, there is holy ground for us. And the second thing, the God who is compassion itself, the God who hears the cry of the poor, the God who responds to the cry of the poor and the weak and the burdened and the enslaved. Now, God becomes the cry of the poor. God becomes the weak and the enslaved and the burden. God is the one who in Jesus weeps and cries and, and bleeds and dies. God now becomes compassion enfleshed in Jesus of Nazareth. And finally, that last moment where, Jesus, where God gives Moses his name, I am. You know, most of the time that's, that's so kind of ethereal and it's so sort of mis- metaphysical and philosophical that we can kind of lose the reality of what's happening there, of God being vulnerable in front of us and entrusting us with himself. And yet that is precisely who Jesus is, God vulnerable, being entrusted to us. And it's not by any accident that especially in John's Gospel, in John's Gospel, very, very often, Jesus uses the words, I am, and in one particular moment, it's that moment when he's been betrayed by Judas and all the, this crowd of crazy people come to arrest him and they gather around him in the garden at night and they've got torches and they're, you know, they're out for blood and they say, we want Jesus of Nazareth. Where is he? We want Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus' response in the Gospel of John is not, I am Jesus of Nazareth. It's not even, I am he, as it's poorly translated in a lot of our English Bibles. In Greek, he simply says, I am. And at that moment, all those soldiers and all that crowd and that gaggle of angry people fall back and fall to the ground, as Moses did. Because they have just experienced the vulnerable and extraordinarily important gift of God giving them his name in Jesus.
with real words. I am. And and it's this that we stand in the presence of every day of our lives. The holy ground is not up there. It's not over there. It's here. It's here in this church. It's here in our homes. It's in our bedrooms, our kitchens, in our hospitals, on our highways, in our workplaces. Wherever we experience the presence of God, the presence of Christ, the voice of God, the Word of God, the Word of Jesus, the love of Jesus, this is holy ground. And before such holy ground, when we find ourselves standing upon it, what can we do except, like Moses, for heaven's sakes, just take off our shoes? <laughs> 